0: That's it. Third service, Mario's doing the announcements. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. Um, we're going to be going live right now on our radio broadcast, Simple Truths Radio, ccpas.com forward slash mobile. So exciting stuff. See where the Lord takes the gospel and the word of God all over the world. I mean, like Xavier's mentioned, there's a sister who's, I think in Africa, and she gets the broadcast, and she wasn't getting good teaching, and now she gets it, you know, and she's able to listen to it on her on her phone, I think, and it's crazy, so we're going to go broadcast live in a few minutes, don't forget this coming Tuesday, live from Jerusalem, Israel, Simple, Tr- uh, uh, the new Simple Truths talk show is going to be broadcast, Pastor Xavier, Pastor Tony, my son Jonathan, they're going to be broadcasting from Israel, And uh, we're excited to see how that's going to come across. And I think they might be interviewing the the tour guide who has a wealth of information. And Xavier will be sharing about the experience up to that point. So pretty awesome stuff. So please keep that in prayer that everything would go well with them broadcasting. And, um, I mean, my son, Jonathan, he's crazy, you know, but the Lord's using him. And he's going to step out, and we'll see what happens. So. You worry about your kids all the time. So Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning and for the church and that we can gather and take in your word. So now go before us and just help us to block out all the cares and the thoughts and focus on what you want to show us for our walk with you, Lord. And Father, I pray for anyone who's listening over the Internet, uh, here live, Father, and maybe on, uh, on the Father, the, the, the website, Father, that they would, if they've walked away from you, if they don't know you, that today would be the day of salvation. Draw people to your throne, Lord. May you increase and we decrease, Lord. Father, go before us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so today we are going to look at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And these are the Beatitudes given by Jesus to his disciples. Matthew chapter 5 verses 1 through 12. Matthew's chapter 5 through 7 are known as the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount has been called the Constitution of the Kingdom. It has been called the Manifesto of the Kingdom. It has been described as the perfect standard for the Christian life. It is for the person who has given his or her life to Jesus and is now abiding under the power of Jesus. It gives us how we enter the kingdom and how we are to walk under the rule of Jesus our King and the blessing we gain as a result it's a very powerful portion of Scripture that makes us face ourselves as Christians and shows us the degree of the authenticity of our walk with the Lord. In fact, Jesus puts this into perspective in, in verse 20 of the same chapter. He says in uh, Matthew 5.20, for, for I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. It's heavy. This must have blown, the those who heard this, they must have blown their minds, because how righteous did the people think the scribes and Pharisees were? They saw them as extremely righteous. They were the religious elite. And yet Jesus declares that righteousness that assures entrance into his kingdom has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. You know, anyone can be outwardly religious. That's easy to do. Anyone can go through religious motions. But it is a change of heart A born-again experience where the Spirit of God now abides in a person and the power of that Spirit and the Word of God where it changes us internally. That's the difference. Jesus desired for those who have given their lives to Him, those who are His disciples, that they would display a righteousness that was different from what was being portrayed by the religious leaders of that day. See, the religious leaders of that day had basically an artificial, external righteousness that was based on the law. But the righteousness that Jesus described is a genuine, very important righteousness that begins from within, from internally in the heart. The Pharisees were concerned more about the, the details of outward conduct, which is important. But they neglected the major matter of the character of the heart. And Jesus, he gives this message, this, uh, the beginning here of the Sermon on the Mount to individual believers. He's, give, he's not giving this to the unsaved world at large. Even though I'm sure people did hear. But it was given to those who were his disciples. Those who were following him. Notice what verse 1 says. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. The message was mainly to those who had come out of the multitudes. Jesus' disciples, those who had committed to follow him. He was not telling people how to get into the kingdom, but he's instructing them how they should live once they are inside it. It was for those who were to be his ambassadors, his representatives. Jesus already had been preaching the gospel. He had been calling people to repent and to be saved. He had called Peter and Andrew, the others, to follow him. And they became his disciples. But he was now going to instruct them on the ideal characteristics... Of the one who has been saved. And it's think about if you're born again here today, think about your life. You first experienced the new birth. You gave your life to the Lord. Regeneration happened. Uh, repentance. Faith in the redemptive work of, of Christ on the cross of Calvary. But then after you experience that forgiveness, then we are we are. To grow and we are to mature in our walk with the Lord. That should be our aim. That there would be growth, maturity, right living, holiness in our lives. And this Sermon on the Mount gives us these beautiful principles, important applications for us to apply to our walk with the Lord. And we need to realize that these Beatitudes, the whole Sermon on the Mount, it's for all Christians. It is a description of what every Christian is meant to be. It's not just for the exceptional ones, the, the exceptional Christians. Jesus is not painting a picture here on this Sermon on the Mount of what only outstanding people are to be. But he's giving us a description of what every Christian is to pursue. And the kind of character, or character traits that our Lord desires his people to have. And as we go through these, I want to emphasize, and I'll mention it again, I'm sure, that these traits are not, they're not traits that we naturally possess. These are not things that we just, you know, being human can have. But they come from being born again and by living by the power of God's Holy Spirit. And like I said, the first portion of the sermon is known as the Beatitudes. Beatitudes. Jesus is giving his, his, the believer, his disciple, be attitudes, the attitudes that his people are to be. And he sets forth the nature and the aim for his disciple, his people. We are to learn to live by these character traits. They're all marks and goals for the Christian. We have a responsibility, we have. We are to have a desire, we are to crave every one of these spiritual attributes. And if you and I claim to be Christians, we claim to be believers, and we don't desire these traits, and you have to wonder about your walk, you have to wonder about your salvation. But on the other hand, if we claim that we have mastered all of these attributes, then I have to question your honesty and mine. <laughs> but we need to desire them. We need to pursue them. They describe the inner qualities of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Let's read verses 1 through 12. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit Jesus always saw the multitudes. Jesus was always concerned about the multitudes. He cared for them. He had great compassion for them. Matthew 9.36 confirms this. It says, When he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. Jesus attracted all kinds of people because he loved people. He wanted them to truly know him and to walk with him. Notice verse 1 goes on to say, he says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, Jesus, as he preached this message, he was seated. In that day, seating was the manner of teaching. Jesus took on the position of a teacher, a rabbi, and that, uh, that a rabbi would take in that day. In that day, sitting was the manner of teaching. He, Jesus did this on a couple of occasions. In Luke 5, 3, it says, Then when he got into the, one of the boats, when he was, which was Simon's, and asked him uh, to put out a little from the land, it says, And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. And then in John 8, 2, it says, Now early in the morning he came into the temple... And all the people came to him, and it says, and he sat down and taught them. Even in our day and age, we speak of, of a professor as holding a chair in a university, indicating that position of, of honor from which they teach. So Jesus was seated, and what he was about to say was with authority. In fact, when he finishes the whole sermon at the end of... Uh, Chapter 7 there in verses 28 and 29, it, it says that the multitudes were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. He spoke when Jesus sat down and gave this message. He spoke with authority as the sovereign king. The end of verse 1 tells us his disciples came to him. His disciples, the word disciples, it, it means It speaks of a learner. It has the meaning of one who follows one's teaching. It describes a person who learns from another by instruction. Disciples includes the idea of one who intentionally learns by inquiry and observation. Taking in thought accompanied by endeavor. It is the believer who accepts the instruction given to him and makes makes it his rule of conduct. I like the way Alfred Erdesheim uh, put this in uh, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. He said, To the first disciples, all doctrine sprang, all doctrinal teaching sprang out of fellowship with him. They saw him and therefore believed. They believed and therefore learned the truths connected with him and springing out of him. So to speak, the seeds of truth fell on their hearts and was carried forth from the flower of his person and life. I really like that. The seed of truth which fell on their hearts was carried forth. It was put forth into their lives. They became disciples. They they took from their teacher and learned. The disciples came to him is what it says there. Verses 2 and 3 goes on to say, Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word blessed, we're going to see this word repeated from here in uh, verse 3 all the way to verse 11. And the word blessed, it means, oh, how happy. But it's not in the sense of, of just being happy because I'm being entertained or I'm in a comfortable situation or, you know, just this this sappy kind of happiness. That's not what it's talking about. It is not a, a superficial happiness that depends on our, on circumstances or chance or hap- happy in this lighthearted sense. That's not what it means. Blessed is a deeper word. Jesus used that day. It's a genuine happiness, a divine joy that comes from having a, rela- a right relationship with God. And in all the different definitions and studying I did on this, I really liked what Warren Wiersbe the way he put it. He said it, it speaks of an inner satisfaction and sufficiency that does not depend on outward circumstances. I like that a satisfaction and sufficiency, an inner satisfaction and sufficiency that does not depend on outward circumstances. It is a blessed state that the Lord supplies, even though you're going through a tough circumstance. I've seen that. You go, I, we go to hospital calls and we see people that know the Lord and that are walking with him and they're dealing with cancer and stuff, but yet you see that their sufficiency is in Christ. You see the Lord sustaining him and you're just you know it's God. That's that state, that happy state, that blessed state. So blessed does not mean without trouble. Doesn't mean that, you know, healthy are you? Or happy are you? Are you because you're admired? But it means that you are so satisfied in the Lord. It means you're deeply content in the Lord. And this is the happiness that Jesus offers to those who put their trust in him. Psalm 32, one says, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Christians should be the most blessed people on earth. Not because of our circumstances. Not because our, but because our sins are forgiven. Because we truly know the Lord. That in itself is, re, is every reason to be so blessed, so blessed. If you think about it, people want to be happy. People are looking for happiness. Why do the bars have a time that's called a happy hour? Why is that? Because people want to go through this motion of we're happy while they're doing something stupid. Even our Declaration of Independence includes the statement, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit, because there is that pursuit. There is always that. Ha- Some people are always looking for happiness. And why is that? It's Like I said, it's because people want to be happy. And this is what Jesus offers. It's not a superficial happiness. Jesus offers true, genuine satisfaction and joy that the world, for the most part, is seeking after. And sad to say, you know, even in the church and as I've seen throughout the years where it's come to in, in many uh, seeker-friendly type churches that, you know, you, they promote this fluffy, superficial idea that Christians are the happiest people. But it's 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 a lot of it. It's a lot of times it's based on, you know, the, the programs we have and going to the Dodger game and all that, which are not bad things. But that does that's not what brings you happiness. It's far more than that. It's genuine satisfaction in spite of circumstances. It's interesting that what Jesus says in verse three, uh, he does not say, "Blessed are those who are self-assertive." Blessed are those who are aggressive, who are self-confident or who esteem themselves. He doesn't say that. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, those who realize their own spiritual poverty. Those who realize that they're bankrupt before God. Those who know themselves and their correct estimate of themselves and that I need God because without God, I'm not, I'm going to blow it. It's the opposite of pride of the person who thinks that they do not need anything. I don't need God. I've got it all wired. It's the opposite of that. Paul said in Romans 12, 3, For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Now, being poor in spirit, it doesn't mean that you don't have a backbone. That's not what it means. It's not having. You know, the Eeyore kind of attitude. Okay, I'm going to get up today and see what happens. I don't know. That's not what he's talking about. It's not false humility. But it's honesty with ourselves. Knowing ourselves. Recognizing our spiritual poverty apart from God. This is the point of this first beatitude. Those who recognize their spiritual poverty and need complete dependence upon God. The person who realizes that there are no saving resources in himself. Look at the result of being poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who come to the Lord within this kind of poverty of spirit, they're going to enjoy the blessings of the kingdom now and into eternity. God has gladly chosen to give the kingdom to those who humbly come before Him, humbly and put their trust in Him. And notice that the, the poor in spirit—it's placed first, and there's a reason for that, because it, it puts forth the following character traits into perspective. It's the foundation. This is where you enter the kingdom, and you come humbly and bankrupt before the Lord. You know you need the Lord, and that's the beginning. And then Jesus goes on to say in verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. The context here in Matthew, it's referring to mourning over sin. Not a casual sorrow of the consequences of sin, but a deep grief before God over our fallen state, over our sin. In the grammar here, it's indicating an intense degree of mourning. It expresses the idea of deep inner pain or misery over sin. Not an external grief. It is truly realizing what sin against God is. David expressed this kind of mourning in Psalm 32. When he was referring to his... his, uh, Situation with Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. In Psalm thirty two three it says, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my vitality was turned into the drought of summer. This is the type of mourning over sin that Jesus is speaking of. And remember again, he's addressing his disciples. We are not to take sin lightly. We have to mourn over our sin and the ruin and, and the separation from God that comes to our lives from it. We need to make sure that we we, we, we deal with it quickly. Get right before God. And I've shared this before, and, and not that I'm perfect, but what's helped me is when I know and I realize and I that Christ houses his Holy Spirit in my heart. I don't want to hurt that Holy Spirit. I don't want to tarnish it. I want to guard it. And it's taking care of that. So that we, don't, we, 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 we have access. We don't grieve the Spirit. We don't grieve the Lord. We are not to take sin lightly. Christianity in this day and age needs this more than ever before. We need an intense realization of the gravity of the fact of our personal sinfulness. This is a major problem that I see in so much of what calls itself Christianity in this day and age. We see people now in in the church that they're partying, they're drinking, they're sleeping around. And I look and I go, these are the things that we got saved from. We got safe from these things to turn around and go the other way. But now it it almost seems like it's becoming a thing that it's okay to do in the church. But if we can truly see ourselves and if we can connect our conduct with how God views it, with God's thoughts about it, I believe that there would be a great revival again in the church. We got to be purged from how society sees it now. We need the hard perspective like Isaiah who said, Woe is me, for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah 6, 5. This teaching of Jesus in verse 4, it's far different than from the mentality that we see in the world today. Today we see just this crazy pleasure-seeking mentality mentality in our society that is, is pushing the limits more and more with sin. But when you really peel the layers and you look at a lot of the people doing this, it's just a mask. To evade the things that are really going on in a person's life. People want to enjoy life. And and, and sorrow and pain put it away from them as much as possible. But the deceitfulness of sin, it comes in. And it always offers a great time and satisfaction for that moment. But in the end, it catches up. And it leads to misery and more unhappiness. But that's the world. What about the Christian? What about the disciple of Jesus Christ? Do you mourn over your sin? Or do you brush it off like the world does and just pretend and go on? Or do you let the Lord just really deal with it deep down and get it right? Notice what Jesus offers to those who mourn over their sin. Blessed are those who mourn. Look at this. For they shall be comforted. He offers comfort to those who mourn. Our Lord is is so gracious. But we are not to abuse that grace. Even as Paul said, shall I continue in sin that grace may abound? No, perish the thought. But we have his grace there for us, you guys. It's it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And the result for those who mourn over sin is that they shall be comforted by forgiveness and have communion with God and access to him to grow in these character traits that are in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. And people in this world live without relief from the guilt of sin, and they they rely on other sources of comfort that doesn't really reach the mourning of the soul. You know, why is our medical industry so huge with all the different pills and the things you can take, you know, to mask up all these things? There's more... I mean, it's amazing. You guys see those and it's like, it does this one thing for you, but it does 50 other things and side effects, you know, and it's crazy. He offers comfort to those who mourn. People in the world, they, they, they dull their sensitivities of their minds for a time, but it doesn't get to the root. It doesn't get to the source of true comfort. And true comfort is in God, in the God of mercy. The reason those who mourn over sin are blessed is that they can be forgiven. There's nothing like knowing that you're forgiven. That is true comfort. It's true comfort in the Savior, in the peace that flows from a better life through the forgiveness of sins. That is real comfort. That is real peace. Jesus said in John 14:27, "Peace I leave with you; my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Those that mourn over their sin shall be comforted." Look at verse 5. Jesus says, "Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth." In classical Greek, the word meek was used to describe an animal that was made tame or gentle. It was like taking an unbroken horse that had power, but it was out of control and it was putting that power under control. So the word meek, it means taking power and harnessing it. Meekness does not mean that a person is spineless or cowardly, but it describes a disciple who has a controlled spirit. A gentle spirit submitting to the will and purpose of God. Jesus himself was known for his meekness. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, he said, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. In the life of the believer, meekness means that he or she is under the control of God's spirit. And meekness is worked out in the context of relationships, how we interact with others, how we treat others. When a disciple, a believer, yields to the Lord and and he's working in our hearts, it displays itself in a freedom from malice, from resentment, or a desire for revenge. Proverbs 16.32 says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Meekness is the opposite of self-righteousness. A person is no longer functioning in pride, no longer being rude and arrogant. It's proof that the power of God is working in a believer's life. When we, he, when we yield to him in meekness. It's amazing when you know it's not you and it's God doing that. Especially on the freeway. And only the Lord can provide this in us. The power to be able to be humble. Uh, to be open to receive from others without a defensive spirit. Only the Lord can provide this in us the power to be able to accept forgiveness, to walk in an attitude of grace, and to live in the love of God. Only He can give us self control. It comes from Him and is to be the heart attitude of the believer. And notice, it is for those at the end of verse 5 that it says, they will inherit the earth. The promise they shall inherit the earth promises that God will allow his meek ones to to not end up on the short end of the deal. Only one day God's going to completely make things right. He's going to take care of it all. And those who have given their lives through him through faith in his son. And those who have allowed him to work in our hearts in this way. We're going to rule and reign with him soon. And it's coming very soon. The Lord's disciples are called to manifest this beatitude. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. (coughs) For they shall be filled. Notice the progression. First it was poor in spirit. Knowing I need God. Knowing without him I can't make it. Then it's mourning over sin. Getting right. Cleaning up. Getting our sin life in order. And then you see the progression. And then you become meek. You're able to instill. God instills that in us. And then you grow and mature in your walk with the Lord. Our old life is purged out of the way. And then you find yourself hungering and thirsting for righteousness. There's a progression. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness speaks of an inner craving. A longing to live with, right in line with God's will. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness long to live right with God. There's a passionate desire in a person's life to be right with the Lord. Psalm 42, 1 and 2. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. That's the attitude. That's the heart attitude. Jesus said in chapter 6 of Matthew. He said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Hungering and thirsting after righteousness describes a believer who has already experienced the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. By faith, by giving their life to him. A believer receives righteousness the moment he or she repents. Christ's righteousness. And there is a cleansing and forgiveness on the basis of the finished work of Christ. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.30, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. But when Jesus says here in Matthew 5.6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he's referring to those who already have entered into that personal relationship with him through faith and have experienced that righteousness. But the born-again disciple is, is, is now to have an ongoing growing hunger and thirst in the pursuit of God's righteousness. It describes a person who has a deep spiritual hunger for the word of God and the things of God. You're not just satisfied with just a little bit, with just a snack. It's like in life. We can't just live on supplemental vitamins for the rest of our life. We need real food in our system. So like i have a grandchild now and he started off with just a little bit of formula and now he's downing six eight ounces now we put cereal in that and he's gobbling it up and i'm watching this he's graduating quickly and i can't wait we're going to give him solid foods pretty soon and and it's the same in our spiritual life hungering and thirsting for righteousness it's a a spiritual necessity to grow spiritually healthy like the main food groups that we need in our lives to be healthy. And it's a spiritual longing that continues. It continues and grows and it's never really satisfied until we're one day with the Lord. That's what we're, the disciple is to hunger and thirst for. Jesus comparing hungering and thirsting to righteousness shows us that righteousness is required for spiritual life just as food and water is required for physical life. We can't live spiritually without righteousness just as we cannot live physically without food and water. The word righteousness is the desire to have sin replaced with integrity. The desire to have disobedience replaced by obedience and rightness, right living in our lives. It is the life in the Lord that is willing to act on God's word. We see people hungering and thirsting for all kinds of things nowadays. Power, authority, success. But how many hunger and thirst for righteousness and sad to say, even in, in some Christians, there's many who have lost their appetite for the word of God. They no longer crave righteousness. That desire, has fade, it fades away. And a result, as a result, meekness and mourning after sin, being poor in spirit, fades away because the cares of the world start creeping in. Self starts creeping in. Self-deception takes over. And selfish pride and self-importance begin to rule. And if you find yourself in that place today, I pray that this message, I pray that today would bring a renewal in your heart. I pray for renewal in your heart. That's why I brought forth this message. so That there would be a hunger and thirst for righteousness in the Christian. And not just... Enough just to soothe a, a guilty conscience, but a whole righteousness to seek it all. The believer's life is to be marked by a desire for more spiritual maturity, a desire to be conformed more and more to the character of Jesus Christ. Paul said in Romans six twelve and thirteen, he tells us, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. The pursuit and practice of righteousness in our lives pursuing the character of God is to be the goal for the believer in all our areas of life and in all our activities, our comings and goings. And the result, notice the result at the end of verse 6. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be filled. God satisfies completely. There's nothing like being satisfied in the Lord. There's nothing like seeking Him in His righteousness and knowing you're in the right place you should be and He's speaking to you and He's directing you. And Oh, there's nothing like that. But, the interesting thing is that that satisfying, they shall be filled, that satisfying, it keeps us longing for more. I know it does for me. It's like the desserts that my wife makes. When I smell them in the oven, I cannot wait. I'm like, man, when are they going to be finished? And then they're done. And I tear them up with a clo- cold glass of milk till I'm satisfied. But then later on, I want more. So I wander over when nobody's looking. <laughs> and there's that desire again. I grab a little chunk again. And, and that's the way it should be in our Christian walk with the Lord. It's to, it, it is to be a satisfying that keeps us longing for more. And we need to know it's God's work. Our part is to seek him and his righteousness. And he faithfully satisfies. But it is the satisfaction that makes us wanting more. Just like those desserts that my wife makes. That are so satisfying. In the next beatitude, in verse 7, Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now, what this does not mean is that if you are kind to someone, that you're going to be saved by showing mercy. That you will, God will forgive you and give you salvation. That's not what it means. Because that's contrary to scripture. So showing mercy does not save us. It's not a condition God demands on us before he lets us into the kingdom. But showing mercy actually demonstrates that we are Believers. When a believer truly realizes, truly, truly realizes that we have been forgiven by the mercy of God, we are to show mercy. We will show mercy when we truly have that, that realization. Mercy is love for those in misery and having a forgiving spirit toward the sinner. It is also, uh, it speaks of, of serving with compassion to others. This is what God has done for us through Jesus, identifying with humanity and suffering on behalf of our sin. Blessed are the merciful. You're expressing the characteristic of the mercy of God in your life. And he calls us as his people to do that. As believers, we have received God's great mercy. Mercy. If you truly consider that mercy that we have received in our lives every day, it is incredibly great. It is overwhelming. It should just cause us to fall on our faces and thank Him for His great mercy. But, it's easy for the disciple, for the Christian, many times to forget and to fail to show that mercy. Many times when we face a situation where somebody offends us or does something wrong to us, we, you know, we have the attitude that, I'm not going to forgive that person. And we quickly forget to show mercy. We lose sight of the realization that the wrong done against us is really nothing in comparison to what we have received from God. In Ephesians 4.32, Paul exhorts us, to display a merciful character he says and be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving one another even as god in christ forgave you if we have experienced god's forgiveness we are called as his disciples to demonstrate this forgiveness in our interactions with others the challenge for us for those who have given their lives to the lord to the disciples to be more consistent and demonstrating God's mercy in our walk to others. In the thick of the everyday life, this is where it comes into play. That we have the greatest opportunity to show mercy that is found in the character of God. And like I said earlier, it's not a natural characteristic. This is not something that the human heart automatically desires to do. But it comes from the power of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts, functioning in our hearts. But our Lord requires his people to follow that example, his example. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. The Lord's mercies are poured on our lives every day, and we are to respond by showing mercy to others. And that causes he says, for they shall obtain mercy, and that causes us to receive mercy. Mercy from God. It it goes out and it returns. It's proof of the inward power of God working in us. Look at verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus goes right to the source, the heart, the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. It speaks of inward purity, of being cleansed inwardly as opposed to outward ceremonial cleansing. It has the idea of being unsoiled from dirt. Remember how Jesus dealt with the Pharisees in Matthew 23 when he told them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but but inside are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's a heavy indictment. It's not just having external actions correct, but seeking to be holy in heart, to have integrity of heart. It's having our minds, our motives pure, knowing that God sees the heart. It's seeking to have an undesirable soiled elements removed from our heart, getting rid of those things that don't belong there, being cleansed of those things. As a person washes their clothes to remove dirt, the disciple was to pay heed to their heart. God desires a pure heart. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks at the inward. He knows us. And we need to be careful that we do not deceive ourselves. You know, there's a lot of people that they come to church, which is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But thinking that we go through these rituals, thinking that just because I serve in this ministry, that I'm clean by just doing these things. We got to be careful that we don't deceive ourselves in that way. Some people think that if they get baptized, they will be cleansed from their sins. But, a fit, you know, that's outward. It's, it doesn't cleanse the inner person. The problem is that defilement comes from a wicked heart and from within. And it's purity of heart that God calls his people to have, his disciples to pursue. Psalm 51, six says, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden parts. For for the disciple, the pursuit is to have the wicked, evil, depraved heart cleansed and purified. Look at the result of those who are pure in heart. It says, for they shall see God. I love that. It's like having clean windows that you can see out clearly. We will see God's hand upon our lives in the daily circumstances that come our way. And ultimately, we will see him in eternity. No one else can cleanse us on the inside. Only God, through Jesus Christ, can do this. And that's the incredible, wonderful thing about having a relationship with Jesus. He goes on to say in verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, Jesus is not speaking of, when he says, blessed are the peacemakers, he's not speaking of one who's just easygoing, laid back, you know, keep on trucking um, kind of person. He's not talking about the one who marches to save the whales. That's not what he's talking about by being a peacemaker. But when he says, blessed are the peacemakers, he's referring to those who seek to make reconciliation and one who seeks unity and not contention. It speaks of those who make peace between people or those who, who... Work to stop people from being their enemy. It's a person who has received the peace of God in his or her own heart and as a result seeks to be at peace with others. Peace, being a peacemaker, blessed are the peacemaker, includes spreading the gospel, telling people about the gospel of peace, of the, the Prince of Peace, and extending to make a reconciliation with others instead of functioning in division and bitterness and strife. And it's not, know that it's not peace at any price. In other words, it's not brought about by compromise with the truth under the appearance of love. It's not achieved by compromising with evil. It's not a peaceful coexistence with sin, like the bumper sitter, you know, coexist. And there are times when it is not easy to bring peacemaking to a situation. But it's not good if God's people, his disciples, do not even attempt to, to do this. When there's a situation, maybe strife or contention, do you have to be the one who's right? The one who has to win? Or do you seek peace? In marriage, do you have to be the one to hold your guns? Shutting down, going silent, that doesn't mean you're a peacemaker in marriage. It's easy to get in the flesh with each other. That's easy. But to seek to get to the heart of an issue, to seek peace, is proof that you're abiding in the Lord. James, in, in, in his book, in chapter 3, verse 18, when he's speaking about earthly versus, uh, demonic wisdom versus the wisdom from above, he says there in verse 17 of chapter 3 of James, he says, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable gentle, willing to yield. I love that. I always think of the King James Version, which says, um, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. The enemy would love to see husbands and wives, families, and the church fellowship in contention and strife with each other. But this is not to be the attributes of God's disciples. Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace, calls us, those who are his disciples, to have peace rule our hearts and his peace outflow to those that we interact with daily. Romans 12, 18, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. It may not always be possible on on the other end, but we need to do our part on our end as God's disciples. This is the characteristic of the ones who are the sons of God, he says at the end of that verse. In verses 10 to 12, we have what a disciple of Jesus can expect from the world. Look at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's interesting here that Jesus goes from peacemaking to persecution. I find that interesting. But if you think about it, if we're going to model as his disciples, as believers in Christ, his Beatitudes... If we're going to hunger and thirst for righteousness, if if that's going to be displayed in our lives, then we're going to encounter persecution. People people will reject the Lord that we seek to follow. And we see this happening in our society and in our country as we speak. People don't want Christianity anymore for the most part. They don't want the things of God. They're trying to remove all symbolic uh, things that represent Him in our country. So Jesus tells us, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For righteousness sake, not for being bizarre, or not for being odd. Not for our own disobedience, not for self-righteousness, but for righteousness sake. He's referring to those who follow what God requires, those who are faithful to his ways. This kind of life is not going to be liked by many. Who do not want the Lord in their lives. And it will happen everywhere from school to your work to your business to your home life. Anywhere that the values and character expressed in these Beatitudes are being lived out. When a person, a Christian, a disciple is trying to live upright. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Yes, all those who desire to live godly in Jesus will suffer persecution. It could be physical and also like the verse we just read, the passage um, in Matthew says, uh, they'll attack you insults, slander, and hatred. But look, notice what our Lord says there at the end. He says, uh, rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. There's a Person by the name of Richard Wormbrand. He's the founder of the Voice of the Martyrs, and uh, he was a missionary and and suffered for the for the cause of Christ. and he And they share an interesting uh, account of his that I think ties into this really nice. It says, while in a Romanian prison, Wormbrand's torturers ripped chunks of flesh out of his body, as his scars dramatically testified. He endured the horrors of solitary confinement so that for weeks to months, no one would speak to him in his tiny cell. Amazingly, despite such humane treatment and experienced times when he was overcome with with cheer joy. Sometimes to the point of actually weakly rising up to his feet and dancing around in his cell, confident that the angels were dancing with him. When Warmbrand was unexpectedly released from prison, he left there looking like a scarecrow, including his rotting teeth. Along the road, he met a peasant who offered him a strawberry from the basket she was carrying, to which he responded, No, thank you. I'm going to fast. Talk about joy. He went home to his wife, and they prayed and fasted for a memorial to the Lord Uh, as a memorial to the Lord to the joy that he experienced while undergoing the horrors of persecution for the cause of Christ in prison. Asking God for the same joy now that they were outside of the prison. Crazy. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. This guy displayed that. He believed in the Beatitudes, the promises in, that are here. And we need to ask ourselves do we? The main reason we are to rejoice is because of our loyalty to him and, and his standards of truth and righteousness in the name of our Lord. Acts 5.41, referring to the apostles when they were beaten and threatened by the Sanhedrin, it says, so they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Crazy. Think about it. Why would a person go through persecution if Jesus was not real? He is real. And if you're born again, if you're a believer in Christ, the most vital decision that you've ever made was when you became a disciple of Jesus Christ. When you gave your life to the Lord, that was the most important decision. But that is not the final decision. Even though that's the most important, week, but we need to continue to make decisions that are in line with the commitment that we made to being a disciple. We need to take this whole Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, to heart. And we need to ask ourselves a few important questions. First of all, do you belong to the kingdom? Are you ruled by Jesus? Is He your King and your Lord? And are you, ma- are you pursuing to manifest these qualities in your life daily? I want to close with Jesus' conclusion at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. The whole thing ends and He says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock And the rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. And we need to ask ourselves today, which foundation are we building our house on? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your incredible word, Lord. And just, Lord, thank you for forgiving, Lord, and and, and being the God of comfort, the God of peace, the God who, who wants to transform us and change us, Lord. I pray for every Christian here this morning, every Christian listening to your word, Lord, throughout the land. Father, that, Lord, you would help us in these trying times, Lord, in the world, in the society to stand fast on your promises, on your word, and to, Lord, uh, allow you to work in us and through us, Lord. And I pray for anybody here or who might be listening over the airwaves who has, doesn't know you, Lord, or, Father, has walked away from you, that today would be the day of salvation. Today would be the day to surrender and allow you to make them disciples of you, Lord. Father, just go before the hearts of your people. And as everyone's praying, if you're here today and you've never given your life to the Lord, or you walked away from Jesus, raise your hand, and we want to pray with you and acknowledge that. God has spoken this morning, and, and it's no time to waste. Your, your eternal salvation is at stake. And if you're here today, surrender to God. He can do an incredible work in your life, as, he done for, as he's done for many here today, as these Christians are praying. And if you're, that is you today, we have my brother Perry's over here to my right. Just go on over. He wants to give you a Bible, share some important truths for you, and uh, send you on your way. Give you a free Bible, and, and you can walk with God now. Thank you, Lord, for your word today, Lord. Go continue to guide everyone's lives, our families, our our, our Sunday, Lord, and that we would glorify you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you, guys. And... Uh, I want to challenge you to just spend time in the Sermon on the Mount this week. Let the Lord minister to you. See what he has for you personally. I'm doing that in my life, and oh, it's tearing me apart. It's tearing me apart, and uh, I want to see a healthy church. I want our church to be strong in him. I want our church to walk with him and be victorious, and that we would stand as a beacon of light and hope to the lost community around us and to our families. So that's, that's why I brought this forth today. So God bless you. Don't forget this coming Tuesday. uh, Keep it simple. Talk radio live from Jerusalem, Israel. Tuesday the 17th at 11 a.m. You can go on to uh, ccpas.com forward slash mobile. I'm sure you'll find it there. Or if you need, uh, just go on to our webpage. I think there'll be a link from there. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful Sunday.